Well, it's great to be with you guys. We are a little running on a little different schedule this morning. So I'm going to start off with the Word, and then I'm going to cover quite a bit of passages throughout the sermon. You guys might get used to that with me. Sometimes I, I, I like to use a lot of Scripture in my sermons. But let's look at Matthew 18, I mean Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, often called the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the Word of God. Well, good morning. I'm Danny. I serve as a pastor here at Waypoint. It's been about one year, and I'm grateful. This is just such a blessing to serve you guys and to serve alongside of you. I also, my primary role is a campus minister to international students and visiting scholars at Duke. We actually launched the Bridges Movement this past week, so I'm pretty tired, uh, to be honest. I, you know, I just did a lot, and it was good to be on campus, and it was good to, to see God beginning to help us see what pockets of campus can we share the good news with. There's about 5,500 international students and visiting scholars at Duke, and we feel called to love them, and to point them to Christ. So thank you for sending me, and I'm glad to be here this morning. Like Pastor Josh said, our senior pastor, Lawrence, is out of town getting a little rest uh, this weekend with his wife and his, his son. And we just finished walking a series where Pastor Lawrence and, and Pastor Josh walked us through First Peter. And normally we uh, go through the books of the Bible or sections of the Bible, which was called expository preaching, the expository style. But we also take, sometimes we take a break and we do topical preaching. And for the next six or seven weeks, uh, there'll be topical preaching. I'll be preaching on the Great Commission. Next week, we're going to hear about the Great Commandment. And then for five weeks, uh, we're going to hear more about the vision of Waypoint. It's been three years. So Pastor Lawrence really wants to bring us back and get us on board with the vision. And then we'll go back to Nehemiah. We'll go back into our more uh, studying a specific book of the Bible. So the first one in this series, like I said, I'll preach is on the Great Commission. And I call the sermon, um, you see the slide up there, Jason makes these slides, I didn't make, I'm not that creative, fruitful discipleship. Because I want us to think about discipleship and I want us to think about the big picture of how the Bible teaches discipleship. And the Great Commission is part of that, but that's not the only way we should think about this. And, and what, what does it mean to be fruitful? In my early 20s, there'll be a picture up, I, I went overseas to study at a college in East Asia. So there's me on the left, and there's Erica, my wife. She was a teacher. I was a student. And this is us many years ago on a college campus. Erica didn't know this picture was going to be shown, so I didn't ask her for permission or anything, so I hope it's okay. Uh, I just found two pictures on my hard drive late last night when I made this slide. Um, so this is us, and, and we're, we're over there, and on this campus, there was a small fellowship of Christians, and I was tasked to help disciple a few of the guys in the fellowship. In this country where we were, there was high restrictions on students, and students were forbidden from assembling for Bible studies or worship unless they pre were previously approved by the authorities. Uh, yet, if you went to get approval for your Christian group, they found some way to tell you no. 
So all three of the guys that I had been tasked to disciple had been Christians for less than about a year and a half. And because of the government restrictions, they had no access to a local church and no access to a local pastor to help shepherd them. So here I was, a 22 or 23-year-old who could barely speak the local language, trying to disciple, mostly in English, three of the key leaders of this campus fellowship. I had some basic materials I was given to help them grow, which was in their language and in English, some bilingual materials. But they seemed to be past the basic lessons, so I wanted to give them more. So I should have went to my leadership, which was in another city, and asked them for the best bilingual materials for wisdom on how to help them grow and mature in their young faiths. But for some reason, I did what someone had done for me, and I decided just to take them to the Bible and make my own study. Because, you know, I'm 23 years old. I, I can make my own Bible study, right? So here I was, 22, 23, barely could speak their language, mainly could only speak English, couldn't even speak Spanish. I almost, I think I took it for two years in high school, but I didn't learn much. I wish I would have. Um, no seminary degree, no formal training in in-depth Bible study, material, writing, uh, especially for like mid-level discipleship. And especially not in a language, you know, using English when their, their English is their second language. So what did I do? Like any good evangelical kid from America, I said, let's start studying Romans. <laughs> and we plowed through Romans together. Each week, I went through Romans, a part of it, maybe half a chapter. Um, and they sat there and listened. At first, I was trying to use Chinese and English. I did found the New Living Translation, which does a great job. A couple of my seminary professors actually were in on that translation, worked on it. And it does a great job of taking some of the rhetorical questions in the New Testament letters and putting them in modern English. So even though English was their second language, it did help. Um, I couldn't find a modern translation in their language. The, the translations were a little older. But we plowed through Romans. Some of you might have had this experience where you, you're in your 20s, whatever, and you're just like, I can do it. And, you, and you, you know, you're just going through it, and you have this seal. And each week, uh, they sat there and listened. And a few months later, some teachers and pastors from another city who could speak their language, some local people, led a weekend retreat for the students. And this is when the students really started growing. And they were growing with me, but this retreat in their own language was the first time that they really got to fellowship and just hear the word preached in their own language. Um, so here I was, you know, trying to figure things out. So let's, let's go five years later. I returned back to the city where I was, and here's a picture. And these are the guys. So the guy in the yellow shirt, his, name, his English name is Peter. He was in my Roman study group. And... Um, at that point, Peter was, at the point this picture was taken, Peter is now a lay pastor in a house church, meaning he has a, he's a professor, he got a job working on campus, but he also went through training to be a house church pastor, bivocational. So I asked him about the year and the Roman study, you know, five years later, and he, his English was pretty good, so he's talking to me in English at this point, and a little bit of, of his language. And he basically told me he was really grateful for my diligence, he was really grateful for my love of the Bible, and he was really grateful for my care for him. But he hardly understood anything I said or did during, the Ro during our eight months Roman study. So this was hard for me to hear, because I had seen some real fruitfulness in 
most of my other discipleship relationships that I had, you know, at that point. And this was a big blow, mainly to my big ego, which was probably way too prideful. Actually, not probably, which was way too prideful. It was awesome to see how much Peter had grown in faith over those five years, but it was also humbling to realize that I could have been much more effective and helpful in discipleship to him during those early years of his Christian walk. I really thank God for that encounter with Peter that day. And and really from that point on, I began to think much more carefully about discipleship, how I do discipleship with those, and particularly how I do discipleship with those to whom God has trusted me with. Do you have a similar story? Have you experienced success or failures when you try to disciple somebody? What about when someone disciples you? What do you think discipleship should look like for you, for others? It's complicated. It's not as cut and dry. I work for a campus ministry called Crew. That's Bridges as part of Crew, the largest campus ministry in the world. Crew, InterVarsity, and Navigators about 70, 60 to 70 years ago created a model that works really well on campus at discipling. If you get plugged in, it works. And a lot of other ministries have have come, duplicated what they do. They've rarely changed anything since some of the 50s because the model works. But the model works when you're on college and you're on that schedule and, and you have these people who can invest in you. But then once you get out of that, it gets a little messier. Some of you might be feeling that right now. Like you want to go back to the old days, maybe when you were initially discipled. And, and we all feel that. And maybe your initial discipler made you plow through Romans and, and it, it didn't really work. But I'm here today to think through discipleship and think of the big picture. Because we say we're this church about discipleship, about reaching the nation. So let's take a brief journey through the Bible, looking at discipleship, particularly the area of reaching people with the gospel, building them up in their faith, and sending them out to reach others. So let's start thinking about Waypoint. So we say Waypoint exists to reach Durham, reach the nations. We're literally saying, what are we literally saying? Make disciples here in the triangle and we can transform the world. Part of why we can say that is because we're this local church with a big global vision. We're not that big of a church, but we have this huge global vision and God is really using us and it's awesome to see. But part of why we can say that is because God brought the nations to the triangle. Over the last 20 years, 30 years, God is bringing people from all over the world. I was in uh, Duke. We had our first Bridges meeting, and we're in this room in the, in the student union, and it has this fireplace, very East Coast, you know, Duke, you know, the, 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 the what do you call it? Like, the school is, you know, just this East Coast elite school, so it has the fireplace, and it has all the yearbooks from all the years. So I said, I grabbed the yearbook from 1965. Every person's white. Almost every person has a Northern European last name. There's not one... Not, one, not even Italian, which would be my, my background. That was Duke, 1964. Now go to Duke. The nations are there. The nations are there. God is doing something. And that's why Waypoint can say, reach Durham, reach the triangle. We can really reach the nations. So thinking about discipleship, um, what, what do we do? What's the next step? And uh, thinking about these people. So many of these people will stay here and assimilate into American life. Some of them, their children particularly, will become American Christians. Some of them may never really learn English. So how are we going to disciple them? Maybe have to disciple their parents, 
in their heart language, but then learn to disciple the children in English? And how do you, how do you bridge that gap? Um, there's a lot of internationals here to stay. There's about 15,000 international students who will most likely go back at the three major universities here. Think about that number, 15,000. Most of them will go back. So we don't want to train them to be American Christians because they're going back. We want to build them up and send them to be ambassadors for Christ in their homelands. And that's, that's primarily what I do in my, in my job on campus. So how do we make disciples? And how do we make disciples that can be sent out as ambassadors for Jesus who will also make disciples? So let me start with this question. What is discipleship? So if you, if you Google what is discipleship, John Piper's answer is like number three on Google because that guy thinks he's a little intense. I love John Piper, but sometimes he's a little intense. But the, if you ask him a question, someone asked him a question, and he wrote the most thorough answer you could think of, but it's concise too. And he says three things. He says, one, it can mean... This discipleship can mean the sense of my own pattern of following Jesus and trusting him and learning from him. That is my discipleship. Or it can mean an activity of helping others be a disciple. He said, two, the second meaning could be helping others. This does have a verb in the New Testament. It's called, um, the Greek word would be methetuo. And it means to make disciples. It can mean to preach the gospel so that people are converted to Christ and become Christians. And Acts 14 shows this, and we're going to actually look at Acts 14. And then the third one, it can mean the whole process of conversion, baptism, and teaching the, the ways of Jesus. And this is best shown in Matthew 28, which is what I read earlier. It's a very long process. This, takes, this is Piper still speaking. This is a very long process. This takes a lifetime. So they get converted, we baptize them, and it's, we spend a lifetime teaching them to obey all that Jesus said and this is a word, this is also discipleship in the New Testament. So it's bringing them to faith and walking them through this lifelong process. So Piper even says, he's a, you know, the guy is thorough when he comes to the scriptures. And he says, it seems like there's three uses of the word in the New Testament. There's three way, and there's three ways we approach it as American Christians. But I want to focus on more this third one. Like bringing someone to Christ and then what, what is our role in, in moving them along this path. We may be part of the process just for a little while, or we may be part of the process for their whole life. When you became a member of Waypoint concerning discipleship, we really make two promises to you. One is that we'll do our best to disciple you. Now, it won't be perfect. It won't maybe look like it happened in your previous group or whatever. We're going to do our best to disciple you. And two, concerning discipleship, we're going to do our best to train you to disciple others. Um, and we are having training. Now, some of these trainings might be to teach you how to teach the Book of Romans. So, so you won't make the same mistakes I have. But these trainings are going to happen, and they're not going to happen this morning. So my goal this morning isn't to just give you some training. We, we do have those. Actually, Joy had one. Where's Joy? she in here? Joy had a great one last Saturday, cross-cultural training. We're going to have a lot of these trainings. Some are going to be more specific, like how to reach international students. Some are going to be more, more broad, like how to just love your neighbor. We're going to hear about that next week. Uh, but we'll be continually to teach these. But for this morning, let's take a brief journey through the Bible, looking at discipleship, particularly the areas of reaching people with the gospel, building them up in their faith, and sending them out to reach others. Let's start with Genesis 1. 
This is from the New Living Translation, which if you work with internationals or people who English is their second language, I would rec definitely recommend this, this translation. It, it really helps bridge the gap, the language barrier. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. So what's the background here? Moses gets this message from God and he gives it to the people, right? They have just come out of Egypt. In Egypt, who's the image of God? Pharaoh. So he's the only one who's the image of God. Actually, if you, you can go to some random small town in America and go to their museum, and they'll probably have a Pharaoh statue because there's so many of them. It's one of the few ancient artifacts that there's just a lot of. I remember driving through Alabama one time. Anniston, Alabama had a was bragging about their Egyptian artifact collection. The pharaohs made a lot of images of themselves. Moses tells the people, male and female, all of you are created in the image of God. This is earth-shattering. Nothing like this had ever been pronounced in, before that and, and really since. We're made in the image of God. So Moses tells them this. So right now, everybody, look at your neighbor and just say, hello, your majesty. All right? All right. So, so the first thing we see is this idea that we're made in the image of God. And the second thing we see is the command. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. And this literally means have kids. Have kids who have kids who have kids. This is before the fall. This is what God's intention for the earth was. To have his image everywhere. I'm going to read a really cool uh, passage I'm going to read two commentators on this passage. One is a, a commentator uh, named K.A. Matthews. He says, The continuum of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, is God's promised blessing, which reaches from the first parents at creation to the chosen seed of Abraham's family and is intended for all people groups. Yet it is only because of the one seed, Christ, that this blessing can be shared now by all peoples who are children of Abraham through faith. So why I started a Great Commission, I believe the Great Commission starts in Genesis 1. It's there in Matthew 28. It's there after Jesus, you know, resurrects. He, he gives us, as his church, this commission, but it started way before that. This is what Keller says about this passage. Tim Keller, uh, a pastor out of New York. He says, I have created, talk, God says, I have created you human beings to reflect my glory, to reflect my goodness, my love, my character. I have made you like a canvas or like a mirror, and you are capable of reflecting my character. If you reflect my character properly, you will represent me to the whole world and everything in the world, and all life will flourish. So what it means to be made in the image of God first is first to actually face God so that we are accurately reflecting him and his character, and then showing that glory to the world and therefore bringing about life. You see how the Great Commission is right there in Genesis 1? When we go out, we're restoring this. We're bringing people back to the image. People need to know that they're created in the image of God. Think about the Disney theology, right? Every girl's a what? A princess. And, and, and in God, I mean, you can twist that or whatever, but in, in God we are. We're all created in His image. We all have worth. Are we going to believe Disney or are we going to believe... Genesis 1. Um, 
Let's move on. So I, I really, I, I put this in, this may not seem like it flows, but I, I prayed about it before I put it in. But let's look at Deuteronomy 6. So, so God gives this command to Adam and Eve in the garden. They break it. Sin enters the world. That's the problem. And then God calls Abraham and God does something about it. And Abraham has children and then they go to Egypt and they suffer and they come out of Egypt and God makes somebody who wasn't a people, a group, just a man and his family, into a great nation. They come out of Egypt, and he gives them these, these laws. And he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And actually, Moses repeats this a couple other times in Deuteronomy, and it's also this idea of remembrance and, and using symbols literally to remember it. Like tie something around your wrist to remember it. There, I know some Christians now, some especially like hipster types, you know, you get the tattoo of Jesus, and it's awesome because you want the tattoo to remember. Look, we got one. You know, you, you want, if you want the, it's, it's literally following, you can say, hey, I'm being biblical, right? I'm following Jesus and doing this. So parents, if your kids get tattoos one day, they might point back to the sermon. I don't have any tattoos, so, um, but there's nothing wrong with it. So, but I, I, when I read this too, I was thinking about us, we know Christ. Like we literally remember that Christ had a crown of thorns on his head and he had nails in his hands. And, and we can write that around our house. And we're, when we do communion, which we're actually going to do this morning, this is part of this, as us as Christians, remembering, going back, taking time to stop and reflect. But there's another part of this passage I want us to think about, and that's impressing on your children. In the Old Testament, the main form of discipleship was in the covenant community, parents passing on the message of God to their children. And sometimes I think we enter into church and we, and we forget that that's, that's our role as parents, that's, that we're creating strong families so that we can make disciples inside our families. Now there's broken homes, there's broken families, there's people who come to the church later in life, so that it's, it's complex. So not every person will only be discipled within the bounds of their family. But that's one of our goals. Here at Waypoint, our children's ministry is strong. Even though we're a small church, we commit a lot of time and energy, and most of you serve. Almost probably like 80, 90% of our, of our membership serves in the children's ministry at least once a month because we believe that this is important. Part of discipleship is imparting to our children. And we're starting a youth group here. We got some of our preteen and youth right here. We're small. We don't have many people, but we value it. It's important because... We're not the complete body of Christ unless we're discipling our children. So when we think about discipleship, first I want you to think about Genesis 1. Then I want you to think about families and remembrance. And now let's go to the, the most famous passage on evangelism and discipleship, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I always find this fascinating. Like, Jesus has died and risen from the dead. He's standing in front of them. And some doubted. You ever have doubts? I do. 
But, it, but it's good. Jesus didn't say, oh, you doubters, let me deal with you right now. No, he just says, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's coming, and, I have, and, and here's what he says. So after they doubt, Jesus comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And this one passage has literally transformed the world. We're, we exist today. This church exists because someone 1,900 years ago started doing this. They took Jesus' claim and they said, let's go. And people told people who told people who told someone who told you, who told me. And this is, this is the words of our Lord after He you know, is risen, before He ascends into heaven. This is the command He gives us. So let's look at it real quickly. First of all, he says all authority. The authority comes from the Father. It's been given to him. He's, it, it, we can do this. We have the authority of the God of the universe on our side. Therefore what? Go and make all nations. Baptize. Teach. Teach them to obey. This is what we're about. I'm going to read one quote from a commentator. He says, To make disciples of all nations does, not require, does require many people to leave their homelands. But Jesus' main focus remains on the task of all believers to duplicate themselves wherever they may be. The verb make disciples also commands a kind of evangelism that does not stop after someone makes a profession of faith. The truly Subordinate participates in verse uh, 19. Sorry, in verse 19, explain what making disciples involves, baptizing them and teaching them obedience to all of Jesus' commandments. The first of these will be a once and for all decisive initiation into Christ, the Christian community. But the second one is incomplete unless it's a lifelong task. And this is Craig uh, Blomberg, a, a famous uh, New Testament scholar. It's a lifelong task. We're loved by God. We're called to love others. We've been restored. We've been renewed. We have this good news. And it's, the good news is the gospel is continually transforming us. And it's, it's, it's this task that he's called us to. Let's look at the next passage, John 20. On the evening of that first day, so this is, let me set the stage so just like the Matthew passage, the John 20 passage is after the resurrection. Some people call this John's Great Commission. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, see there's fear and doubt, Jesus came to them and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And this is the beginning of the fulfillment. When, and if you read John chapter 14 to 17, Jesus spends a significant time with his disciples. And he tells them, It's, it's, it's better for me to leave because God has a plan. And part of the plan is, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. But when I leave, the Spirit will come. The Father calls 
the Son. The Son is obedient. The Son ascends, sits at the right hand of the Father, and the Spirit descends upon the church. So I believe part of the Great Commission, and you really see this in Acts chapter 1, is Christ ascending and the Spirit coming down on his church. All right, let's look at one more passage. Acts 14. I got to go quickly. So Acts 14, verse 19, that we're going to read from the New Living Translation. Then some Jews arrived from Antioch um, and won the crowds to their side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. But as the believers gathered around him, he got up and went back to town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. And there's a background of this. They, they come to town. They do a lot of miracles. People think Paul and Barnabas are literally Greek gods. They call them like Hermes and, and Zeus. And they think they want to like honor them like gods because they did miracles. The Jews come from another city where they'd been preaching. And then they get stoned. So I think this is interesting because we just read this. I was actually talking to Jordan this week. We were looking over some stuff. And this was his observation. So here's Paul complete gets stoned to where they, the people who were stoning him thought he had died. And then he just gets up and goes back to the mission. So I, I've never been stoned. I've, I've had some bruises. I, I've, I've played baseball. I've been hit by a baseball many times. Normally when you get hit by a baseball, the bruise lasts at least three weeks. And some, some lasted even longer if you get hit in the face. So can you imagine Paul walking back into the meeting like literally black and blue everywhere like a a constant reminder and he's so dedicated to the gospel that he just keeps going and if if you keep reading it it says after preaching the good news in derby making many disciples paul and barnabas return to um they return to antioch and uh iconium where the people who stoned him were from so Paul gets stoned by the people, and then, and then him and Barnabas are willing to return because they, they're compelled by the gospel. They really believe Jesus' great commission. They really believe that the Holy Spirit is with them. And then they're strengthened by the believers. They continue in the faith. They remind them this, that you must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Wow, you think Paul could say that? He probably might still have had the bruises on his body as he's saying this. I, I can't, I don't know that for sure. But at least they know that the man's been stoned to the point of death. Paul doesn't say, you know, hey, what happened to me? I hope it doesn't happen to you. I mean, he, I don't think he wanted it to happen to them. But he, he's saying there's going to be suffering for the kingdom. They appoint elders. They pray and fast. They turn over authority to the elders. They put their trust in them. They travel back to some other regions. Finally, they return to Antioch. You know, Antioch, the place where the people stoned them, um, where the journey began. They called the church together. And if you read verse 28, it says they stayed with the believers for a long time. Discipleship isn't a, a, a set formula. I'm sure this is a long period of time. This might be, this is probably about almost a year. This, this short passage is covering a, a, a big chunk of time. But you see how they're doing discipleship? They're trusting God. They're following where he leads. Now, these are apostles. They're a little different. Most of you aren't called to go out. Some of us do. Some of us in this church will be called like them to literally go and pioneer in a new place. But for most of us, the Great Commission is going to be more local. But we can learn a lot from their methods. 
we can learn that we're just called to continually trust God in every circumstance, to keep looking around and saying, what is God doing and how can I build his kingdom? How can I make disciples who make disciples? And how am I being discipled? How am I growing in Christ? All right, practical application points. These aren't necessarily from the exact text. These are just things that I see in all these passages and that, that I've learned through, through many years of, of trying to make disciples and seeing other people try to make me a better disciple of Christ. One, be humble. Trust the Holy Spirit. Trust your leadership. Be humble. Two, be patient. Expect suffering and hardship. Expect things to not always work out. Not everybody's going to be receptive immediately. Uh, basically, you could just say, practice the fruit of the Spirit. I challenge every believer to memorize the fruit of the Spirit, say it all the time. Write that on, if you want to get a tattoo, write all of them on your heart, because we, we need these. Um, write them on your forehead, you know, put them on your hands so you always see it every time you go. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Be bold. Don't be afraid to proclaim Jesus. As we looked at in 1 Peter, what does Peter say? Never be afraid, never be ashamed. Always be ready to tell people about the reason for the hope that you had. So some of you may be like, hey, I'm around a bunch of agnostics. I'm around a bunch of atheists. You don't have to go crazy, but be prepared to tell them about the hope that you have. I promise you, if you look, God will provide opportunities, even for the person who is just bitter toward the gospel. God will provide. Just be ready to tell them the reason for the hope that you have. Be intentional. Be thoughtful. Are you, are you help preparing children to grow? Are you working with youth? Are you working with internationals? Are you working with internationals who are going to stay here and their kids are going to be learning English? Maybe we've got to set up a Bible study for them in their heart language. Be intentional. Be thoughtful. Did they grow up in a Christian home? Have they been, have they been burned by the church? Did they grow up in an agnostic or an atheist home? Be thoughtful. Think about it. Be intentional. Prepare. Pray. Trust God. And finally, be biblical. And, and, and one thing, I, I'd sum this up in grace and truth. Jesus came in grace and truth. We, we've got to come in grace. We've got to be, you know, always be showing grace to ourselves, to other brothers and sisters. But we also need to be truthful. We need the gospel. We need to be transformed. We are dead in our sin. We're, the, the last few months have shown, you know, we have lots of problems in our country. We have lots of problems in our own hearts as a church. We have to continually seek God's grace and seek his truth. All right. This is kind of weird what I'm about to show you, but I just wanted to sum everything up. And as I was thinking about words, every word started with a P except for one. So my summary today to help you remember, actually all these words start with P, and I'm normally not the kind of guy who does this, I promise you. If you know me, this is not my style at all. But here's a bunch of P words. The first one, this is what God has done and what he's doing in the world when we think about discipleship and we think about the Great Commission. One, there, there was a perfect plan and a perfect place, the garden. There was a problem, sin. We sinned, we broke the relationship, we broke the covenant. We were cast out, but God made a promise he made a promise to Adam, and, and he made a promise to Noah, and he made a promise to Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets and Elizabeth, and John's Baptist mother, and John and Joseph and Mary. The promise was that he was going to make all things new. He, was entering, he would enter into humanity, 
And that promise was a person. God came. He promised He'd come. He came. He died, he ro- and He rose again, and he's, and he's coming back. We celebrate communion to remember this. And there's a paradise. This was the P word that I had to come up with. I, I was going to say there's hope. for There's a new heaven and a new earth. But it can be paradise, right? Because we return to the paradise. So the Great Commission is bringing us back to the garden when God's going to make all things new. We're giving people a glimpse of that now. All right, when you think about the Great Commission, I want you to think about these things. The people, us, the church. Jesus gives us authority as his church. He pours the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes on us and we're sent out. There's a proclamation. We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the good news. There's prayer. And I put in fasting because in that Acts passage, I think sometimes we're quick to pray. We're slow to fast. I'm the worst victim of this. I, I hate I don't like to go without food, but we need to be a people who pray and fast. There's power. There's the power to go. The authority has been given to us. The authority has been given to the Son from the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see the Trinity right there in the Great Commission? And then there's the promise. He's with us to the end of the age. We're going to take communion in a minute. This is good news, guys. We have the gospel. We have the Great Commission. I hope I've given you just a little summary. This is a taste. We're going to go into the Great Commandment. Pastor Lawrence is going to help us with the vision. We're going to have very specific trainings that help us flesh this out. But this is what we're called to. This is the gospel. There's people, us. There's a proclamation. We need to pray. We need to fast. We need to know that we're going in power and Christ's authority by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's a promise to us Just like God promised Abraham, he made a promise to us that he's coming again and he's with us. And he's with us to the end of the age. Let's pray.